This is Studio Insights, a Provost Studio podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Studio Insights, a podcast brought to you by Provost Studio. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Welcome to another episode of the program. Today, we're talking lighting. We're going to dive in and explain all the different things you need to know about lighting and uh, and why it's so important. But more importantly, we're going to get to know the man that is behind a lot of the lighting projects that Provost Studio does. His name is John Gebby. He's the New York Business Development Director for Barbizon Lighting. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. We're also joined once again by Peter Provo, Associate AIA President and Director of Design at Provo Studio. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Howdy. No problem. Thanks. Absolutely. So, John, let's just get to know you a little bit first. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into this line of work in the first place, and uh, and what what made you so interested in it? Well, that's an easy one. That's a softball for anybody who's a lighting geek like myself. We all started out as in the AV squad in high school and couldn't get enough of the toys. That's how all of my colleagues got started. You're either in the TV studio or you're in the theater and you're you're playing and toying with lights at 12 o'clock midnight and getting keys to the school. That was me for sure. I went on to NYU to Tisch to study film and television. And uh, every single time I worked on a project, I just kept gravitating back to the lighting. I don't know why, but something about it. And then when I graduated, I went right to work for Strand as a field service technician. A couple of years later, Barbizon came knocking and they asked me to join them originally as a project manager, then as a systems division manager, and now as the business development manager for New York. Um, that's kind of me in a nutshell. That's incredible. You know, I had someone tell me a little while back that most people that work in AV, you know, you you can't swing a stick too far and not find someone who, you know, wanted to be a musician or was, you know, involved in theater or something like that as a kid. That that's just kind of how this industry tends to work, that if you work in audio video, you know, in, in some way, shape or form, chances are like you had that um, that itch when you were a kid to to perform or to, to kind of be in and around that type of, uh, of world. And that's where a lot of people come from. And that seems true of you as well. No, that's true. And Tyler, it's not just the bug to get, once you get the bug and you get hooked in the business, the business tends to retain you because the work is so exciting, mm. right? You're doing very, you know, a, a, a wide array of different lighting projects. You could be in the theater. You could be dealing with a broadcast studio. It could be a major network. Um, I've involved with all of them, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, uh, ESPN, whatever it might be. There's a variety of different clients out there that all have unique needs and wants. Same thing with the theater jobs. I mean, I was personally involved with building World Trade Center Tower. Uh, it was a huge accomplishment for me. I was really proud of that work. And all the light, color changing light on the outside is all done by a, the, a theatrical broadcast systems integrator because the controls are fairly sophisticated and they need to do what they need to do. So they bring in, the, you know, our little niche business to come and help them with that sort of stuff. Did you guys do the experience too? For NBC? No, 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 no. The, sorry, the World Trade, the, um, the one that I took my kids to. You know, with the, like the experiences you go. Oh, where you take the elevator up? Yeah. No, we we didn't do that. But we did do, when you do Empire State Building and you enter that experience, that's something we did. So you see the little model of the Empire State Building. A lot of people don't know that the lighting controls on the exterior of the building are modeled on the model on the inside of the building. Oh, that's cool. It's that sophisticated. That was a lot of work, that little model. Very cool. As a non sequitur, I have to admit, uh, I was on stage crew 
uh, in high school. And um, you know what? Funny enough, uh, I was actually the lighting designer for like, I don't know, it was like Pinocchio or something. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. I went to school for architecture. Like I didn't go the theater route. And then somehow when I was in New York, after grad school and after I worked, like I got sucked in somehow. That's it. And so, happens. you know, as a result, like our work is what it is. It's pretty, we were pretty obsessed with lighting and just <laughs> in general, like creating drama, drama in the space. And yeah. as I tell everybody, and, and even though this isn't like self-serving, but like you can spend a million bucks on scenery, you can spend a million bucks on or two million bucks, whatever it is on 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 a branded environment or a space but if you don't light it well it i don't want to say it doesn't matter but like you're not taking advantage of the money that you're spending and the effort not even the money the effort um if you're not lighting it well so i'll I'll quote my our founder jonathan resnick from barbazon uh, I learned a lot from that guy. And one of the key phrases he always said, cheapest way to change your environment is to flip the switch on the lights. Yeah. Think about it. You know, you want to reform the space. How how much easier is it to do than to concentrate on color and, and the manipulation of color and control and do that through the form of lighting? Why not? Yeah. I mean, my my response would be to that is, yeah, you can flip the switch, but you need to have the talent behind it to know what the switch needs to do. Right. And that brings us to what this whole topic is about today. <laughs> yeah. Well done, buddy. I like right. it. Tyler, you should ask the questions, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> no, this is this was better. This was better, honestly. But speaking of that, let, let's talk a little bit about what makes you an expert in the industry then, John, because it, you do have so much knowledge about this. And and let's focus just in on, on studio applications, right? What sorts of, uh, of, of pieces of knowledge and best practices have you picked up over the years that, that make you an expert in terms of lighting and, and that sort of thing and makes you an expert in this industry? Well, it, it, first and foremost, it's important to differentiate what I do. I'm a lighting systems integrator, mm-hmm. very similar to an AV integrator. That doesn't make me a lighting designer. There is a whole team of people I work with that are partners of Barbizon that, that are lighting designers and have that eye. I'm an infrastructure person. My role in the equation is to bring all the pieces and parts you need behind the scenes to make those lights work the way they need to work, right? So all day long, people forget about me and the job, the, the, the infrastructure required to do a broadcast facility correctly, right? The key elements for me are power distribution, data distribution, structural support, um, and, and that's coupled with a control system. And then eventually we get to lighting fixtures. But you need those five elements before you even think about the design itself. So the way I always approach my job is I like to interview the end user. I like to interview the client. I like to get a sense of what they're going for to get a general understanding. But what people need to understand is spaces, the applications and the use of the space changes over time. What you don't want to change over time is your infrastructure. You want your infrastructure to be as timeless as possible. And if I'm doing my job correctly, I am striving to give you the pieces and parts you need in your studio so that it'll last as the industry changes, as your look changes, as your news director changes, as your producer changes, as a new vision comes into the space, you don't want to have to call contractors back in to revamp all that money you've already spent. So again, if I've done my job right, you can call me back in 20 years and say, John, we're still using it. It's still cooking along. Everything's great. 
So when you when you think about that that infrastructure and the things that go in place, you know, before design even begins and that sort of thing, I would guess then that there's a pretty specific maybe timeline of decisions that have to take place mm-hmm. um, and, and a specific order of operations for for things to move down the timeline and for things to you know to, to progress. Let's say, uh, what does that look like when you're doing a project? That okay. that timeline of things and how does that all come together? Good question. One of the things we talk about as a systems integrator at Barbizon is we're the bridge. We're the theater geek. We're the broadcast lighting geek. But we understand construction. One of the first things we do with uh, new employees, and this is a catchphrase I tease, I say we hand them a hard hat and work boots, okay? And we teach them the elements of construction. How does a contractor work? What does a contractor need? That's the only way we can effectively be the bridge for the owner. And that's what I think an integrator also is, not only the infrastructure person, but the bridge to translate construction speak to the arts folks that are at a broadcast network, okay? So what do we need to know first and foremost about timeline when it comes to construction? There's two different ways to run a job. You could do a design build where your design team runs from the beginning straight through construction all the way to programming and focusing a new show. The other way to do it is design build, uh, is design bid, excuse me. Design bid work, you have a design team that's responsible for the design, and you have a separate team responsible for construction. Sounds the familiar, The in-betweeny Tyler. part, oh, this, this came up already? With oh, this is good. No, no, you're okay. like, right. I typically am saying this. This is perfect. Groundhog Day, hello. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so good. So, good. So, so the in-betweeny part, a lot of people like to bid the work out after the design is done. I I don't blame them. They want to get the best value for their money. There's there's nothing wrong with that. But what they forget is the impact it has on the timeline. And Tyler, that was your question. As soon as you transition from design build, you have to allow the time not only to simply bid the job, but you have to translate all the design intent information and details to the construction or implementation team. One of the key elements of that is construction drawings. Construction drawings don't come from the design team. They come from the supply team. That means the manufacturers need time to generate construction documents to give to the installer. That traditionally takes six extra weeks. Bottom line, I'm not even talking about in the days of COVID where things are taking longer in general, but normal construction speak, you have to give the implementers, the construction folks, six additional weeks of time. So that is always forgotten about when people are starting to put together the decision-making of design build versus design bid. So again, I think it's important because an owner needs to make a choice and they see the value behind the design bid because they feel like they're getting the best value on the product, but they're losing timeline. So in some cases, that may end up costing them more in the long run. That's really, really interesting. And just, I, I guess, provides an extra factor for people to think through, right, Peter? Uh, it's it's important for people to have all of this kind of information and weigh these different factors when they are making decisions in this regard. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, at least from what we're seeing in the corporate world, companies and clients are more interested in, at least from what we see, more interested in being able to compress time and have um, really, to be honest, like one one company that holds all of the all of the communication and, quite frankly, the liability for the project because it makes it easier relative to enforcing contract, but also just to write one check. And so the the challenge is when we get 
you know, a client that wants the de design, bid, build price, but they want the design, build efficiency and speed. And so often, I mean, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but no doubt about it, you, you're going to pay a premium for design build. But I, th I like to think that even though the client is going to pay a bit of a premium for that, the expedited process, as well as being able to control the quality and the team, like I can pick John, if we hold the prime, if we hold the prime contract for design build, like I know John has done work in, I don't know, LA for instance, and he just finished a big job that will give him great pricing for, I don't know, that market. Well, if I land a project in LA and I know John's like, the top dog out there and he and he's got great buying power i can call john and say hey john we got this thing what do you think that that is the that's the power of design build that i think oftentimes clients overlook too because if it goes design bid build i don't know who i'm going to get like i that's not in our scope of work to control so yeah i i think peter's right on the mark with that uh, you know i i use a uh, a catchphrase that, that we often talk about, the smarts with the parts, right? So you can go to a dot-com, you can go to a large supply house and you can buy a lot of these products, but you're not getting any of the intelligence that come with it, any of the smarts that come behind it. And the uniqueness behind Barbizon is we are by far the largest supplier of broadcast lighting equipment in the globe. And we've got 175 employees. All we eat, sleep, and breathe is production lighting. So again, the buying power is by far there, more so than anybody on the planet. But what we're trying to do is the value add as well so that you don't call me back complaining, not that the light's broken, but it doesn't meet your expectations. If I've done my job correctly, I've helped you select the pieces parts with my smarts that meet your needs. Because honestly, I always look at us in Switzerland. You can got, buy from me any brand you want. I, I don't. It's very hard for me to find a brand we don't sell. So it allows us to remain neutral and say, hey, let's focus on whichever brand works best for this application. It also, as an integrator, allows me to mix and match multiple brands. I mean, that's the definition yeah. of integration, right? I can pull from all sorts of brands and stick them all together. So again, I, I think that helps separate the idea of hiring an integrator versus going to a, a .com and doing the shopping on your own. Yeah, and, and that actually is, is something that clients often overlook as well, where we'll go into a situation where there's a design build project. Yes, there's lighting and equipment. And I don't want to say it's a short sightedness, but the initial reaction is, oh, well, but I can go X, Y, Z and buy it here cheaper. Well, yes, you can. But at the end of the day, you don't have the consultancy and the brain power that's embedded within the full design build project if you do that. And uh, John, what you're saying really does highlight that that maybe a consultative aspect to, to what you do, right? Where you understand what a client's needs are and how you can best meet them utilizing your expertise from the industry, right? So that really highlights those initial conversations that you talked about where you want to know what their goals are, what they're looking to accomplish. And then you can tell them, hey, given your budget and the different constraints that you have, here's how we can do that, right? And so that's really interesting to me, just taking in all those factors and then being able to then turn around and give them a product that they're going to be happy with. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, that, that interview process is critical. And I think a lot of people don't realize that as they're pre-planning the staffing of the facility, that shapes my planning tremendously. Again, if you want something, a lot of people say, I want it, 
I want no staff. I want it minimal. You know, I want the, uh, the single technical director to be able to do everything. Well, we can do that. Absolutely. And that's quite common, actually. But what people don't realize is automation costs extra money. There's a lot of automated infrastructure you need to be able to press one button and have it do what you just described. Yeah. Right. So it's a trade off in a lot of instances. So, again, that that and then the other part of it is how what how flexible do you want the space to be? This is another huge killer. I, I can't tell you there's not a week that goes by in my world where someone doesn't say I'm moving the camera and they yeah. forget to say what impact does that have on lighting? Yeah. yeah like, right. no, 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 no. You can't right. move that camera. You only bought one lighting setup. Right. You want to shift yep. it 10 feet to the left. That's a totally different lighting setup. Either we take the lights down that you had and move them over. Or you shoot or we dark. buy all new light. Or you turn off the lights <laughs> and make it radio. The radio yeah. is great too. We love yeah. radio. Yeah, a miner's cap. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So those little tiny questions in that interview process at the beginning, really, you got to press the owner to say you need to make some basic choices about how you want the space to flow. Right now, I have no problem. I mean, a lot of people are jaded. And I'll, I'll jump to this. A lot of people are jaded from that high school experience or from, you know, maybe it's a news director that used to do camera and lights 20 years ago. And when the lighting guy would look at a screen full of numbers. Right. That was a really normal thing. That you'd go, oh, give me channel two at 100%. Give me channel 97 at 11. We don't do that anymore. We, the computers are far more advanced than that. We're looking at much more intuitive screens that allow the operator. It could be talent. It could be the camera op that says zero training. They can very instinctually look at the screen and go, oh, look, there's the key light. It's drawn in a 2D model. I understand how that goes. And I want to raise it because the talent person I have is darker skin today. Beep, 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 beep done, right? Much more intuitive than that old concept of you've got to have a board operator with that's gone to college for this, right? So again, I like to stipulate there's a difference between the initial programmer, because that guy's got to have skills or gal, has to have some crazy skills to program these computers. I think it's a good investment to get a top-notch programmer to set up those 2D screens and give you all that flexibility and all that stuff. But the operator may not be. I always talk about the Sunday morning operator. Sunday morning operator is the temp guy. That's the person who rarely is around. You know what? That's the day when all hell breaks loose. That's when my phone rings because they don't understand the infrastructure of that particular arrangement. They may be a terrific computer operator, but if they don't know that particular setup, they may get themselves in, in trouble. So I like to be able to say, invest up front in a really good programmer and then reap the benefits for years to come for the operators. All right. That, that happens in corporate webcast all the time. Not so much in network stuff, but yeah, that happens all the time. And Peter, I'll make you laugh. A lot of owners don't realize the software to do what I'm describing is built into the computers now. It's not like some fancy, you know, specialty. It's built in. But people know I go to my slider and my handle and I raise the lights up and they come on. And I'm like, but do you realize you all you got to do is add a touch screen and you have all this interaction? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know I had that. Yes, you haven't invested in utilizing that part of what you already own. The infrastructure's there, the computer's there. You just need the know-how. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, John, you you guys work with a lot of the lighting designers we use, and I mean, for the for the viewers that are, you know, going to watch this, I mean, literally, there's like an interactive. You know, it's a monitor, right? It's like, think of it as a big old iPad and there's a 
plan of the set. And literally there are like icons placed around that plan that literally are pre-programmed. So there's a, you know, in plan, you can see me sitting there and a guest and you can literally like just hit and click buttons that will go up and down with the values of those fixtures. It's super intuitive these days. It's not like, like what you're saying, John, like the old school, like with the sliders. And yeah. That. It's just, that's done. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you another one though. Let's talk about that same topic as it relates to flashing forward to the modern led. So I have a job. I had, again, Barbizon does all shapes and size. It doesn't matter to us if it's a network or if it's public access. I went to a public access space. These guys had lights that were flickering. They weren't flickering regularly. They were flickering occasionally. It was blowing scenes. It was blowing shots because it would flicker just at the wrong moment. Can you come by? Can you tell us what's going on? I'll stop in. Let's take a look. It's odd. And they were having it across a whole array of different lights. Was it a power problem? We were thinking infrastructure, well, an integrator, right? So I stop by and I immediately say, okay, where, how do you turn off power? Let's cycle the lights. Let's turn it off and let's refresh everything. And they're like, turn off the lights. Like, yeah, how do we, we turn? do that? Well, we go to the computer and we turn the slider down and the lights go down. Yeah. But, but that doesn't turn off power. People don't realize right. this. The yeah. power is still running to the light. You've just told the LED to not output any light. Right. But it's still on. Yeah. So they actually were told by the initial lighting design firm, good firm, to literally, they had a lock, a padlock on the wall switches. So they couldn't. To the power. So they please, couldn't. They didn't even know what was the behind system. the padlocks. They After a couple of hours of research, they couldn't restrike anything. We wow. cut the, that we found the lock, we cut it off, we turned the lights off, and we brought them all back on, and that was the problem. They wow. had all the switching power supplies, and all of their lights had failed. People say, well, LEDs left 50,000 hours. Yes, and the LEDs in those lights were just fine. What they didn't realize was the switching power supplies had been running for seven years straight, never turned off. Wow. So again, it's an infrastructure oversight. They didn't know this. They were thinking it's LED. It runs forever. The, the lighting designer was saying you should not be concerned with the power and turning things on and off because it may not come back the way it was. That's, again, a setup thing. They didn't properly have a procedure in place to turn power down at night, turn back on it in the day. And it cost them. They had to replace all those power supplies. Wow. So, John, when it, I, I want to go back to that, that those meetings that you have with, with clients and, and, and the way that you absorb information from them and, and that sort of thing. Are there questions, like if you had to create your ideal client, your ideal customer, are there questions and things that they've already considered in their head that they have thought through before they've talked to you? And if so, what are some of those things? Well, I think turnaround time is one of the biggest. How fast do they plan to turn a show? If they shoot the same show every day and nothing changes, well, you don't need a lot of infrastructure that allow you to do a change over to another show. There are other spaces where they literally shoot five or six shows in the same room in the course of one day. There's a lot more infrastructure that I need to put in to allow the lighting crew to advance you to that next program. Peter's going to deal with a desk sliding in. He's going to deal with elements scenically. I have to deal with the same issues from a lighting standpoint. And those are things that I really can't even start my job until the owner has contemplated what they're trying to do with the space and how many shows they're trying to squeeze in. Now, again, I like to give them infrastructure so they can layer in. I always talk about layers. Lighting is unique in that I don't pull in another scenic element for a new show. I have to have all those elements pre-hung and in the ceiling ready to go 
when that next show comes on. So you may walk into a black box space and you may actually see three sets of lights for three separate performances, three separate shows, all in the same black box. Peter and I have discussed this at length. So it's not just the fact that if you want to change the camera angle, you have to add a shot. But if you want to change the show, you need a whole new set of lighting fixtures. If you don't need that and you have, let's say you have a week in between shows, well, maybe you have your crew come in and change the focus of one set of rig from one week to the next. That's okay. But there's some sort of hybrid combination that's unique to each client. And I desperately need that contemplation to happen before we start sitting in creative meetings. This is uh this has been excellent stuff and just really really fun to to dive in and discuss. I hate to uh, to cut us off, but we're almost out of time. And so, John, I want to give you the ability just to give us any any final thoughts that you have, any any uh, closing things you want to leave our audience with here on the topic, just of of lighting, but also the planning that goes into it. Everything that there is to discuss around this topic, we've touched on so much today. What do you want to leave our audience with, and uh, by way of a summary or just final thoughts? The, the the newest thing for me, technically, just to share that with the group. Yeah. Um. Again. And we like to talk tech at Barbizon all day long. I think one of the newest and greatest things we have with the advent of the LED is the ability to manipulate color. Um, everybody gets a little bit jaded because they say, great, I don't have to shoot at 5,600 uh, daylight. I don't have to shoot at tungsten 3,200. Uh, the, the key element here to really understanding the control and what we're giving people is we are now running in tandem with camera. Camera and lighting, now that we have control, color control, are now connected at the hip. This is new. We didn't have this before. I can change color manipulation almost as fast as the shader can. Hmm. I need to not only work hand-in-hand -hand with the shader, I need to be able to potentially supply a shader when I go to tweak lights. We've never had that before. It's not been an issue. So again, I, th I think, Peter, you know what I'm talking about, but this is the newest and latest thing that, that the reality has, has dawned on Barbizon and, and the creative folks that I deal with. That synergy and that flexibility is, again, pushing the technology, pushing us and pushing us to that next level. Yeah, I mean, what to play off that, um, John, I mean, what we're doing is we basically build one or two dailies for a shader just for us. Like... We don't know exactly what the client is going to be doing, what we're going to be getting. We'll just build that in so that we have it. So we're not worried about are the cameras shaded? Are they not? Are we in sync with what the lighting's doing? And video walls. Don't forget the video walls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely. That's part of it. And so, um, I mean, part of the good thing about technology and the integration of all these things is is it is starting to allow uh, a greater control of the end product, right? But but what, and maybe I'm making um, an argument here for design build, which is like, as, as us holding the prime contract, like I can make sure that we have a shader, that we've got the video programmer and the, the, um, uh, the video, the AV guy who's going to be doing the color correcting on the LED as well as the the programmer for the lighting all on site all at the same time and all looking through the lens with the client right there to make sure that it's what it needs to be. And those are some of the most fun. That to me is the best. That's when it all comes together, right? If all the right players in the room. And like the formula is gelling, right? You know, yeah. that's eventually where you want to be. And it all just clicks. 
Exactly. And we all blame it on you when it doesn't work. Yeah, that's, I love <laughs> yeah. it. Bring it. That's okay. <laughs> and Tyler, I know we talked about the end game, but again, I want to emphasize, because we didn't touch on this and it's so important, the structural component of what I do. All these lights have to hang from your ceiling. And I just wanted to, with the tagline, there is a lot of structural knowledge that needs to go into a building. Barb is on my team. We spend a lot of time calculating loads. One of my favorite tales is MSNBC. I'm talking about Secaucus. I'm talking about their corporate headquarters. This is long gone. They underestimated what the structural load was going to be for lights and camera and everything else. They had to remove a section of the ceiling after the steel was in to put supplemental steel in. And what we've always said for all these years, if they brought the integrator in sooner into the construction creative meetings, we could have lent that expertise earlier in the equation. So it's not just the back end and trying to visualize what it'll be at the end of the game. It's also a question of bringing the appropriate technical people in early enough to catch all these nuances. Boy, that is a, a theme of the podcast. And that theme being um, that the earlier you bring in the experts, the better off you can be because you catch things like that before you make mistakes, right? And that's something that Peter can attest, just that the yeah. earlier you bring in the experts, the, the less risk there is of you making a mistake like this. Yeah. And I like the fact that it's not me saying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we're all feeling the pain. It's true. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, yeah, it's good. Peter, we, uh, we always say we, we're dealing with the same issues from job to job to job. There's a level of expertise that we're bringing to the table. We've already made all the mistakes on the, all the other jobs, right? We're not going to make that mistake on your job. That's why you're bringing in the experts. Yep. Excellent, excellent stuff. John Gebby, New York Business Development Director for Barbizon Lighting, and Peter Prevost, Associate AIA President and Director of Design at Prevost Studio. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, breaking down the importance of lighting, but also just talking about so many things that uh, that people might not have known before they listened to this episode. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, sir. I had fun. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you again to everyone out there who, who watches, listens to the podcast. For more on Barbizon, you can head to Barbizon's website. That's B-A-R-B-I-Z-O-N.com. Barbizon's website, as well as Provost Studio. That's P-R-O-V-O-S-T-Studio.com. Make sure to go check out both of those websites to learn more, to get in touch with both of these companies. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the podcast. We'll be back soon with more episodes of Studio Insights. But for this one, for my guest today, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>